what do you like to be beside the seaside? Oh, what do you like the Skagness? Apart from the seagulls. Seagulls are awful. Seagulls are basically vultures of chips and ice cream. Well, how does a seagull even eat ice cream, would be my thing. Like, they take ice cream off you, but how do they even eat it? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged brute with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. One of these days, I need to change the intro and the outro again. I've just noticed it says weekly series. I've made the decision. I can't do it weekly. With the best will in the world, it'll never be a weekly thing because, well, me. Fortnightly, for Americans and other aliens, that means every two weeks, is better. You'd have thought by now I'd have realised what I'm capable of, but apparently not. Last week, I had an online workshop all about imposter syndrome, which was really useful and interesting as a creative type and former gifted child who takes the view that everyone else now finds things really easy. It seems to be inevitable that it's a well I'd have fallen down, but hopefully I can start to mitigate for it. I think it'll also help that I'm seeing a therapist every week now because, well, teenagers will teenage, and it's been a long time to be holding on to those feelings of angst that have pretty much defined who I am. Thirty years of hurt never stopped me dreaming. Not unlike the England men's national football team fans, I think. Against this, however, I entered a writing competition last week. This is one of those things that I'm always reluctant to do. I know it'll involve me doing a lot of work, expending a lot of effort, for almost no reward. The knowledge that I won't win, for instance, indeed the knowledge that there won't even be any feedback because the T's and C's didn't mention it, so if I don't win I'll have no idea why, there's no scope for improvement. But this particular competition... I was directed to it on Twitter about a month and a half ago, but paid it no heed because the deadline was, at the time, still a month and a half away, November the 30th. It was a travel writing story competition, up to 5,000 words, all about travel, fictional or factual, run by a company I'd never heard of. So, almost as much up my street as you can get. So, on November the 30th, yes, I sat down and thought, you know, I ought to do this. That it was a Monday and I was busy at work for half of it is neither here nor there. Anyway, I made the deadline with five hours to spare, so quite early by my standards. I don't know how I feel about it. Possibly I'll forget about having done it until they announced the winners in mid-January. But I guess it's done, at least. And it meant I spent time working my brain rather than taking my default option of spending five hours on Twitter, the Explore tab of Instagram, and certain other websites that we won't go into on this podcast. Not again, anyway. Anywho, so it's now December, and it's getting really dark really early. Again, you'd think I'd been used to this because it happens every year, but the combination of dark by half past three and the grey, miserable, damp weather that this time of year brings means it's not my favourite time of the year. It's not even like we get a proper winter, you know, like places in North America with its clear skies and deep snowdrifts. I'm not convinced that's preferable because I'm not fond of putting things in the freezer to allow them to warm up, but at least the views would be better. It is thus the ideal time to talk about the seaside. Talk about seasides, we can talk about seasides. What's your favourite seaside? I don't know, actually. I've been to many. Pick a favourite one. Oh, Vancouver. Well, aren't you a posh bastard? (laughs) Sticking with the theme of British. You're German. I've never been out of this country, I'll have you know. Have I? Do I have a passport? It's not important because we're talking about British seasides, right? They're not British though, are they? Because they're going to be importing the sand. I Importing the sand. I like Skeg. Skeg is good. It's it's trashy in that wonderful car crash TV kind of way. It's like... I just find any, most of that coast are going to be the same, but there's better beaches. Yeah, that's true. Hutoft is a nice little private beach just down or up from Skeg. 
but but I I like Skegness for the track. I think if a seaside doesn't have a massive roller coaster on it, like literally right by the sea, and a big ass pier and a shit ton of seagull vultures, then is it really a seaside? Is it? Without the the woman sat there trying to convince you to buy the seven pound plastic bucket that you could get from the pound shop so you can make sandcastles. I mean, come on, without the arcades making all the noise in the world that the seagulls are desensitised to. Can you tell that I've got a thing against seagulls? Cleethorpes. Cleethorpes is nice. Inglemills are there as well. Inglemills is basically Skegness, let's be honest. There's one in between that's got, the, it's got like a holiday park opposite in it, but it's got a nicer beach. I don't know. I can't remember that, of course. I'm with S. Of course you know about the nicer beaches, you posh bastard, right? Listen, we we... We, over here, right, we like our traditional trashy-ass beaches, okay? Where you won't find jellyfish, you won't find life in the sea, you'll find plastic bottles and condoms. Gravel. And gravel. Yeah. And you think you've seen a jellyfish, but it's not, it's actually a plastic bag. Sand prawns. But, but, we wouldn't have it any other way. Most of the sea that you are dipping your toes in is 90% piss and you love it. (laughs) That is the way, that is the British way. We'll sit there in the sun, not having any suntan lotion on, because we're going to get ourselves a tan, right? And then we burn, and then we sit in Weatherspoons, peeling, talking no, about how bad the sun was. We won't be sat in Weatherspoons. Well, we wouldn't be sat in Weatherspoons, no, but the tradition dictates. We're sat, miserable, on a bench, and then, in the rain. And then you pay £25 for a bag of soggy chips. That the vultures take off you. At the you know, there's always that one where there's, there's always that mum with the tiny little toddler that needs to pee, so she digs a hole in the sand and then holds a coat up like a shit sheet so the kid can piss in the sand. If it's warm enough, I, I will dress as a Viking, come out of the sea, and say, "Come to rape and pillage the land." Please don't do that. <laughs> no, Scarborough's nice though. Scarborough's like a classy. It's classy. It's rather classy. Yeah, no, Whitby's nice, but Whitby's not really a beach. It's got beach. Yeah, it's still a better beach than Skegdal. Again, I've just gone through the whole trashiness of beach. You have to have the roller coaster and the yeah. discarded ice cream and the condom floating in the water. But, but Whitby makes up with it with God. And and the drunk weirdo. There's always drunk, drunk weirdo. weirdo there's always a drunk weirdo wherever you go. The one that's like stumbling towards the sea that oh, goes, no. watch this, and you're just kind of like, <gasps> somebody's going to die. I don't think I've been to Robinhood's Bay. That's, I mean, that's in between Scarborough and uh, Whitby. I don't know. I, I, I'm not posh, okay? I had Skeg. Oh, Scarborough's not posh. No I had Skeg posh. and Inglemills. That's all I had. Weymouth. <laughs> I have actually been to Weymouth and Portsmouth. You posh bastard. You've just reminded me. I did. Yeah, we went on a Haven holiday. Okay. Haven holiday parks. They're always beside the sea as well. About, um, and the Butlins. Newquay, where all surfers go. I don't know anything about Newquay. I've never been there. Yeah, there's that and there's King Arthur's castle. Well, it's called Tintagel. Okay. They have swords there. Wonderful. There you go. And it's on a cliff edge. Yeah. Knackered ass castle on a cliff edge. I do I do like a good I do like a good seaside. Yeah. We do like to be beside the sea. Depends how far afield you want to go, because obviously that's Cornwall. Go to Ireland and go for the inch stretch. That's a good beach. Posh bastards. <laughs> that was Jacks and Bear, also known as Adam. They're two friends of mine from back in Kirkby and Ashfield, talking about their experiences of the British seaside in quite raw detail. It may help to get a map to track the places they mention. Or maybe it won't. We'll come on to some of these places later. The one they mentioned a lot, though, was Skegness. Also known as Skeg. Skeggy and Skeg Vegas. It's one of the prime resorts on the east coast of England and is pretty much an archetypal stereotype of this kind of town. It is also the reason I decided to do a whole podcast on the concept of seaside resorts. See, I'd never been there until this year, much to the derision of most of my friends back in Kirkby. At the start of October, faced with the dual prospect of an ongoing pandemic and a new job, I felt I'd needed to just go away for a couple of days while I still could. Obviously, I couldn't flee the country, and the weather wasn't conducive to going overnight hiking, plus I felt the need to see the sea. I'd not been to the coast for pretty much a year since I was interrailing around Europe in autumn 2019 and plastered by places like Karnak, Benidorm and Nice. Benidorm, yes. Anyway, I looked on a map and realised this was a perfect time to visit Skegness. Not too far away, by the sea, wouldn't be too busy, should be able to get a decent guest house. And so it turned out. I had two nights there and it only really rained on the day I left. Now, Skegness isn't that big. It's got a population of just less than 20,000, which makes it smaller than Kirkby and Ashfield. 
I know I use my obscure hometown as a reference point for a lot of things, but it works that way. If it helps, Skegness has half the population of that other famous seaside resort, Monaco. But Skegness has a better beach, a better funfair, and better cheesecake. Let's give a shout out to Artisan Coffee Design on Lumley Road, which produce fabulous cheesecakes. Jack's is right, by the way. Despite being a major destination for those in the East Midlands, the beach in the town isn't that big, and it's quite grainy. Although, obviously, on my visit it was also pretty empty. There is a decent enough pier that sticks out into the sea, and the fun fair is between the promenade and the beach, so you can practically drag sand from the beach onto the big wheel. The promenade itself is a mixture of bingo halls, amusement arcades, guest houses, and places to grab food from, and in the height of the summer season would be rammed with people going from one to the other. In the grey autumnal drizzle, it all felt a little dead, but I don't know, maybe I prefer it that way. I had a full morning out at an area called Gibraltar Point, a nature reserve with sandy trails through littoral grasslands and dune environments. It's a great place for bird watching. Indeed, there were several birding huts scattered around the area, but it's also nice just to get out and breathe the fresh air. It's a few kilometres south of the town and located beyond a golf course. Because there's always a golf course by the seaside in this country. Indeed, in my head, the two are inextricably linked. Many of the seaside towns I was familiar with as a child, from Southport, where I grew up, with nearby Hoylake and Lytham, to Carnoustie in Scotland, where we went for a couple of times on holiday as a child. Seaside resorts often have golf links near them. And on the hike across Great Britain I did last year, we passed by several on the few days we have in Norfolk. In a way, it kind of makes sense, an open area of sandy and grassy ground that isn't useful to build on, but part of me does feel like it's a good walk spoilt, as the oft-misattributed quote has it. But back to Skegness briefly. It struck me, going to a place like that as an adult, that it felt very different from the sort of places I went to as a kid, even though they are essentially the same thing. And I don't know if that's me getting old, or seaside resorts themselves changing. As a kid, I used to spend hours in the arcades playing on the games machines. You have to remember this was the 80s, so arcade machines then meant the huge single-person cabinets, each programmed with a different game, of the kinds that would be ported to computers. This is where things like Donkey Kong and Pac-Man started. These days, the games are very different. They're either more immersive and often multiplayer, or they're more like gambling machines, and the arcades feel more like cheap casinos. That's not to say that gambling machines didn't exist when I was younger, only that in this environment they were along the lines of penny pusher, penny drop machines, where if you timed it right you could win like 47 pence, all in copper. It would make a great ITV quiz show, that. The food is the same, though. The same array of deep-fried donuts, hot dogs, candy floss. Indeed, as a kid I had a computer simulation game of a candy floss stall by the seaside. I think it was designed to teach very basic economics. It cheated, obviously as well as giving an unreasonable expectation of weather forecasts. And of course, fish and chips, which are indeed best eaten on the beach. The only reason they're soggy is because of the sheer volume of vinegar they're traditionally drenched in. Having the best fish and chips is almost a competition, and many resorts around the country fight for this honour, although the ones on the northeast coast of England seem to have the edge, places like Whitley Bay, South Shields, and of course, Whitby. Someone else who has thoughts about returning to the seaside as an adult is B. Marshall, creator of the Yes Parenting movement, who has an additional interesting observation about how it feels to see her children going to the seaside now and comparing to her own experiences. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. Oh, I do like to be beside the sea. I don't know any more of the words, but I do know the tune. La 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 la. <laughs> As kids, we always went to Cornwall on holiday with other families. We would stay in different places. So one family stayed on a caravan park. We used to stay in a cottage. Um, I don't know where the other family stayed, but we would always go to the same beach every day for two weeks. And we'd go to Polzeth Beach. And back when we were kids, Polzeth just was, it was a very familiar, easy, lovely place. There was the surf shop. There was the ice cream van that used to drive along the sand. It's a really long beach. And I have so many memories of those times that the dads used to build these giant sand castles and come in the sea with us and the mums would get the picnics ready and kind of make the kind of little beach camp area all nice. And they would always want to be reading and the dads would be doing the stuff with us kids. And yeah, I really loved it. And so many fond memories of those Cornwall holidays. And then as we got a bit older, we then started like going 
camping holidays in France but those Cornwall holidays have always held this really special place in my heart and just remember the the long drive to get there and there would be this building excitement as we got closer and we'd have this competition in the car to see who could see the sea first and it was just like this anticipation of who was going to go I can see the sea before anyone else and I remember the surf shop and I used to love to just like look around at all the different clothes and the surfboards I wasn't into surfing but I loved all of that and it was yeah it was amazing but I went back I went back about 10 years ago and it just felt so different. It had a completely different vibe to it. It it felt like it just felt somehow classy and and really um intentional. It, it wasn't just kind of this place that lots of people happened to go. It suddenly had bars and coffee shops and hotel like well there was always the hotel there was a hotel where we used to go to do a poo for example but like it how do I describe I don't know it just felt showy and I was like well it never was showy it was it just it just seemed really different I as an adult since moving to Yorkshire have been up to places like Filey and Robin Hood's Bay and Whitby and the other one that's name has just completely escaped me Scarborough yes I've been up to Scarborough as well and going to Scarborough reminds me of when we used to visit one of my mum's best friends from growing up called Marianne she lived in Brighton and Scarborough and Brighton although in many ways they couldn't be more different have these similarities that I love like the arcade games like the two penny machines where you keep thinking that you the next two penny you're going to put in is going to cause all of the others to tumble down and they they rarely do and the joy of putting your five pound note into the coin machine and all of the change pours out into your little pot and 99 ice creams and and fish and chips by the sea and I know you shouldn't feed seagulls but feeding seagulls is something that I've done in both Scarborough and Filey and Whitby and Cornwall and they're just such simple pleasures but they feel so rich and exciting and magical. I used to love the rock pooling and the clambering over the rocks and the sense of adventure and curiosity. I'm really aware that as a mum, having taken my own sons to, well, certainly to the Yorkshire coast, to kind of Filey and Scarborough and things, they don't seem to have the same joy and magic and and an excitement that I had when I was a kid and maybe even that I would have now and I I wonder if that's just to do with how much things have changed nowadays like our kids have access to so much more than I had or we had when we were kids and there were a lot of my connections with going to these kind of seaside places was the rituals that came with it so my mum would always make a batch of holiday biscuits. Holiday biscuits was our family's name for millionaire's shortbread. But because she made them when we went on holiday, they were called holiday biscuits. And so we would always know that there would be one holiday biscuit each during the day on the beach. Other things that I remember as I got a little bit older was taking my towel up into the rocks away from everyone else and taking my book with me and feeling I mean I wasn't that grown up at all I was probably about nine or ten but taking my book with me and lying there and sunbathing and and feeling really grown up in this place that was so familiar and safe to me and there is just something wonderful about this act of taking your windbreak and your cool box and your buckets and your spades and your bag of towels and and everything else and and taking it all down onto the beach and choosing your spot and and if you have a favorite spot trying to get there before anyone else gets your favorite spot and setting up for the day and and that just being your world for the whole day and the freedom that the seaside gives you to just be able to go off or you know play with other kids and just be in the waves or be in the rocks or buried in the sand the joy of burying my my siblings and I in the sand and have the feel of having all the sand packed around my body was amazing but also hating the feel of the sand in my mouth or kicked in my face Ugh. 
but yeah, just so, so wonderful, those kind of traditional seaside holidays. And yet it's not really something I've recreated with my children. I I mean, you know, we have been to the seaside, but we certainly haven't done seaside holidays in the way that I did them as kids. And I think it's something that I would love to do, but my kids not particularly interested. As I say, I grew up near the sea. My single figure ages were spent in Liverpool, only a few kilometres from the coast at Crosby. And when I was 12, we moved to Southport to the suburb of Ainsdale. Although a little more, shall we say, posh and refined than places like Skegness, the football show Match of the Day once described Southport as geriatric, and indeed, the time that I lived there, there were more retirement homes in Ainsdale than pubs. It was, literally, a place where you go to die, like Eastbourne on the south coast, rather than a place where you go to live. It still pretty much had the same feel and vibe, just in a slightly more middle-class way. Southport has a huge pier. It is the second longest in the country at 1.3 kilometres. The longest is at South End in Essex, a fact I wouldn't have known without researching. There was even a tramway that ran along its length, though for cost-cutting reasons now it's been replaced by one of those cheesy tourist toy road train things. It's also the oldest iron pier left in the country, having been built in 1860. The beach at Southport itself is huge, partly because the town lies at a bulge between two river estuaries, the Ribble and the Mersey, so the area has accumulated a lot of sand and silt over the years. The running dark humour in my childhood was that if global warming caused the sea level to rise, it would flood half the world, but at least you'd be able to see the sea from Southport Pier. It's large enough too to have been used as a training and fitness ground, especially for horses. Noted Grand National winner Red Rum was a regular visitor to the beach in his heyday. But also for humans. I was in the school cross-country team and we used to regularly go training on the sand dunes at Crosby a few kilometres to the south. I don't know how many of you who are listening are runners, but running on sand is... hard. It really stretches and develops your leg muscles, especially doing star jumps and burpees on 45 degree sand hills. The town itself always felt like a veritable throwback to the Victorian era, with iron aprons covering the pavement in front of the shops on a couple of the streets, buildings that have been in place for over a 100 years, and during my childhood it still had a wooden roller coaster, the largest in Europe it was claimed. Pretty much on the beach, yes. Although it had some amusement arcades, the entertainment tended towards catering for the older crowd. Easy listening singers and cabaret acts were more popular than pop stars here. South of the town is Formby, an incredibly leafy and well-to-do place most famous for its sand dunes, large pine forest and red squirrel nature reserve. Indeed, it's one of the few places in the country where the red squirrel is allowed to thrive. This is, by the way, where I developed my love for both forests and running. My uncle would drive there to take the dog for a walk through the woods while I'd run home. It's kind of why I feel at home in the woodlands. It was great to be alone in such a natural space, away from the stresses of, well, teenagerhood. Someone else who also grew up nearby is Sarah, who's known online as the Urban Wanderer. Here, she reflects on how it felt to spend childhoods by the sea and how that affects the way she feels when she goes back. I love seaside towns. I don't know whether it's because I grew up on the Wirral and we were really lucky to have New Brighton and most of the Welsh seaside towns on our doorstep. But there's just something quite special about them. Even when I was little, though, it was strange because I remember the sand being quite black from Camel Laird and we never really realised why it was black. It was only as an adult that I noticed that it was probably because of the shipbuilding. And... I always remember making up a song about dodging dog poo while walking down the prom and the grotty little outdoor activities that you could get involved in. There was always some sort of sick from people coming out of the nightclubs. But it didn't really matter. It was kind of a fun and interesting place to be. And as an adult, I love them even more. I don't know what it is about them. Their kind of quirkiness... The fact that they're a little offbeat and not many people go to them. I think that's part of the sort of charm of them. And I'm forever heading to places like Blackpool and Real. And even though they're run down in places and they don't get looked after as well as they should do. I think that's the exciting bit because there's always something different to discover. And that garishness that just makes it quite fun. I think um, is a nice thing. But I'm in sort of this funny place, really, because I know that a lot of these towns have high deprivation and they need a lot of care. And it would be nice if they were done up. But at the same time, I feel like I probably wouldn't go anymore if they were more popular or polished because it would kind of got rid of that 
that cuteness, that forgotten era as such. And it would be too busy in a way. There's nothing quite like going to Landudno and walking along the prom in the rain because nobody's there. And it's this special place that you can just enjoy on your own. And you kind of get to see a different side of it because nobody is there. Sarah at the end there mentions one of the reputations that seaside resorts have, one of a feeling that they're quite run down, slightly forlorn, derelict places. And you may have got that impression from my talking a bit about Skegness earlier. I'll come on to this point shortly, but firstly I want to talk a bit about where seaside resorts came from and why they became so popular. I'd argue the two are intrinsically linked. It was all the Victorians' fault, really. I mean, the power of the sea had been known for millennia. Even the Romans had second homes away from the hustle of the larger towns as a place to go to relax and recuperate. In fact, at least three Roman emperors, at least Western Roman emperors, Diocletian, Vetranio and Romulus Augustulus, retired to the seaside in a manner that wouldn't have felt out of place nowadays. Most of the others didn't. Indeed, Diocletian appears to be the only one to have done it willingly. The idea was the combination of the sea air and the less stressful lifestyle was seen as either a rest cure or a way to prolong life. Spa towns, so beloved of more inland areas, served the same function. People would go for holidays there to take the waters and rejuvenate themselves. Of course, throughout history, and even until pretty much the 19th century, holidays like this were the preserve of the rich. Because they weren't trading hubs, nor manufacturing or agricultural centres, there was no reason or even ability for the majority of the population to visit. Even had they been able to, there would have been nowhere for them to stay or eat. This was very much holiday home territory, a factor that still holds true today in many areas. And while both ports and fishing hubs existed, neither were seen quite as genteel enough for the rich looking for a place to rest. Industrialisation changed everything, as it tended to in other aspects of society. Specifically, a combination of more liberal factory laws, especially after the Great Reform Act of 1832, I did a podcast on that, plug plug, led to a decade of acts that granted workers a small number of rights and freedoms, along with advances in technology that led to the creation of cheaper and more efficient transportation. This was the age of the train, and provided a method by which workers could spend their newfound leisure time. This was often still very much work-centric or church-centric, however. While those first railways served as trade links to the industrial towns of the north of England, and the very people who didn't previously have access to their own transport, rail travel was by no means affordable to the individual in the masses. Rather, what emerged was what later would be called package tours. Many were provided by the factories themselves, which would often shut down for a week at the time in summer, so-called wakes weeks, to do proper maintenance. What could they do with a workforce without work to keep them occupied, happy, and, let's be honest, all in one place so the factory owners knew what they were up to and they could keep an eye on them. Oh look, there's a railway here that we're already using. Let's take them all away somewhere. But where? Oh, let's go to the seaside. It's far enough away from here and it's different and it's fun. Each factory would close on a different week, so there was always a constant mass of people in the seaside towns, which as a consequence grew quite rapidly. In addition, the towns chosen tended to, obviously, be quite close to where the factory towns were, which led to the feeling that still exists even today of certain resorts being associated with certain areas. Blackpool, one of the largest, grew as it served the many large mill towns in East Lancashire, places like Blackburn, Burnley and Colne. Skegness, conversely, was the destination of choice of the East Midlands colliery and hosiery towns like Sutton in Ashfield, Nottingham and Ilkeston. Another group who set up these tours had religious backgrounds. One such example of this is the Victorian entrepreneur and philanthropist Thomas Cook, who took advantage of the then up-and-coming railway network to arrange short trips for the local working population. Although not a Leicester native, he first had the idea to conduct tours after walking to Leicester from Market Harbour, about 15 miles. Presumably he also walked back, although it's not recorded if he did this on the same day, uh, generally for meetings or for church events. The first trip he organised was in 1841 from Leicester to Loughborough, 11 miles. Ooh, exciting. But it was so obviously a success that only 10 years later he was organising over 150,000 people to visit London for the Great Exhibition. And by the 1870s, through his new business venture, Thomas Cook and Son, he was taking people on trips around the world. Thomas Cook himself was motivated by his religion. He was a fervent Baptist and temperance campaigner, believing that encouraging travel was a way to ensure the workers kept religiously focused, as well as distracting them from the demon drink. One wonders how he'd feel about modern-day package tours under his name. While he surely approved of the concept of families from the industrial heartlands being able to take two luxurious weeks in the sun... I'm not sure he'd necessarily approve of the exact scope of the phrase all-inclusive. 
He certainly wouldn't have approved of the Wakes Weeks, and although over time the practice stopped, generations of predominantly working-class families from industrial towns continued to make the journey to the coast for a week of relaxation. Associated concepts developed. The most notable in those early days was Music Hall, popular across society anyway, but found a particular niche amongst these audiences, and which gave way to the wider concept of variety. Musicians, comedians, often both. This was the hunting ground of people like George Formby, Gracie Fields and Max Miller, who were all household names in their time. You had magicians, dancers, and they'd perform nightly to raucous and half-drunk audiences. Basically, think of endless episodes of later editions of Britain's Got Talent. The humour tends to be quite base, stereotypical, sometimes subversive. This is, after all, the home of the Punch and Judy shows, because every six-year-old needs to learn about domestic violence and assaulting policemen and saucy seaside postcards. Because we're all too embarrassed and repressed about sex to talk about it properly, so let's assume and imply it behind childish giggles. We had an entire film industry devoted to this in the 1970s. The centre of this was often the holiday camp, the much derided but incredibly popular all-inclusive complexes that served as convenient bases for a week's holiday. Functional rather than aesthetic, often containing long mobile home-type structures or concrete blocks scattered around a central entertainment block with a restaurant, a games room, swimming pool, bar and dance floor, and usually right next to the beach. Very much geared to children and party animals, they were traditionally staffed by what you might term holiday reps, red coats, yellow coats, that sort of thing, whose job it was to ensure that everyone was having fun. There were several brands, including Pontins and Butlins, and there was something similar in nearly every resort. And so it continued until, well, my lifetime. Until foreign holidays started to become in reach to the majority of people. No longer were places like Margate and Real exciting. Why should we go to places with polluted beaches and constant drizzle, close to home and therefore overly familiar, when we have the opportunity to go to exciting places, with huge stretches of sand and guaranteed constant sunshine, much more interesting food and drink, and even the possibility of a holiday fling. No longer satisfied with having a snog from someone from distant Barnsley, now you can practice your schoolchild French and say voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir with no hint of pretension whatsoever. Obviously they'd laugh at you so you get stuck with eating a dodgy Italian. Marbella, Ibiza, Benidorm, names that oozed exotic, mysterious and unknown. Cheap flights and package holidays made them accessible, indeed cheaper and often easier to get to than some of the traditional British seaside resorts. Comfortable, clean planes get you to the sun in two hours, shorter than a crowded, rickety, often delayed old train. And the people flocked. We even had a TV sitcom about it in the mid-80s called Duty Free, filmed in that glorious foreign seaside resort of uh, Leeds, because the budget for 80s TV was quite low. Admittedly, many of these places ended up as weird recreations of the British resorts they replaced. Parts of Benidorm, for instance, are very weird. The cafes serve full English breakfasts, which you can eat whilst drinking British lagers and watching English football on TVs, while down the road the cabaret venues and clubs have imported British singers and Australian bar staff. The only indications you're in Spain are the weather, the traffic driving on the right, and some of the shops having Spanish-sounding names. You can spend a week in a resort, a hotel, and never venture outside of an Anglophone bubble. Meanwhile, back in Britain, the seaside resorts become shadows of their former selves. They are some of the most derelict, deprived areas of the country, reliant on seasonal workforce, pretty much dead in winter. They're often not that large places, a bit of a journey from anywhere significant. Skegness in particular suffers from this, as it's over two hours from Nottingham, the nearest major city. The railway is direct, but not in any way straight, and almost all the roads are single carriageway and weave around the county. So firms are less inclined to relocate there. There's less investment and infrastructure given to them. In the year up to June 2020, the average unemployment rate in England was around 3.9%. In Clacton, it was 5.8%. Blackpool South, which covers the majority of the town, was 5.9%. The two parliamentary constituencies of Thanet that cover the Kent resorts of Margate, Ramsgate and Broadstairs were 45 and 5.1%. Even Boston and Skegness, which covers a large agricultural area as well as the town itself, was 4.4%. Many of these places voted for Brexit. Indeed, based on an estimated model... The parliamentary constituency of Boston and Skegness is regarded as the most Brexit-supporting place in the country at over 75%. The Brexit referendum was reported by local authority. The corresponding authority, East Lindsay, voted 70.7. Another seaside resort, Clacton, was third at 73%. Castle Point, covering the resort of Canvey Island, was also top 10. And places like Cleethorpes and Blackpool also saw over two-thirds of voters voting to leave the EU. 
Primarily, this would have been a resentment at this lack of government investment, lack of jobs and services, coupled with a feeling that the low cost of living was driving out-of-towners to buy up the houses and take what few jobs there were. I need to point out that East Lindsay's own council stats state that while the proportion of white British in England is 85%, in East Lindsay it's 96.5%. Irish and other white, presumably Poles, push the total white population to 98.4%. Nigel Farage may be many bad things, but it can't be doubted he's a bloody good orator and master of misdirection. To be fair, in some of the more affluent seaside resorts, especially in the southwest down Cornwall Way, people are indeed buying up housing and using them as second homes, in the Roman manner, and pricing the locals out of the housing market, exacerbating the poverty and deprivation elsewhere in the borough. And, just like in the Roman manner, the people who are doing this are those who can afford it, the higher classes, who, by the way, are mostly exclusively white British. However, here may be one of the only plus points to Brexit, although it rather depends on who you are. Leaving the EU means losing freedom of movement. Those cheap Ryanair and EasyJet flights to the Costa del Sol and the Greek islands may well become a thing of the past, once you factor in slower immigration procedures, higher insurance costs, mobile roaming charges, and potentially visa admin fees. One of the few places that might stand to benefit from this are these long-forgotten and much-derided British seaside resorts. Will we see a return of package holidays to the likes of Torquay, Helensborough and Barry Island? We had another sitcom back in the 80s called Heidi High, which was set in a British seaside town's holiday camp at the end of the 50s, and which was even then seen as very nostalgic, just the sort of world loved by the Brexiters, I guess. While they still exist, they're no longer anywhere near as all-encompassing as they were, but are we going to see them return to prominence in some form as people rediscover them? I realise I'm painting a bit of a dour picture of seaside resorts here. Let's take a couple of more positive examples, starting with a town I've considered one of the most depressing places I've ever been to in my life, precisely because of all of this recent history. Rill, in North Wales. Now, the most famous spot in Rill was the Sun Centre. I'd never been, and it's so not my sort of holiday entertainment, but it occupies a firm place in my childhood memories, since BBC Radio Merseyside used it as a prize-winning destination pretty often. It was really nothing more than a glorified sports and leisure centre, but for working-class families from inner-city Liverpool, it was the closest thing we had to the Med. As you might expect, it lost popularity, and the council ran out of money to keep it open in early 2014, demolishing it a couple of years later. However, it's now been replaced by a new hotel, and further up the prom, a modern and new leisure activities centre called, with continuity, SC2. Rill's promenade is lined with weird art installations, mosaics and sculptures that provide a bit of culture and colour, while the beach itself, the main draw for most of the tourists here, is large, sandy, and by being north-facing rather than west-facing beaches nearer Liverpool, a little less windy and harsh. Admittedly, you get the same view of the wind farms and oil rigs in the Irish Sea, but they're far enough away and no one's looking at the horizon. Also in Wales, but at the other end of the country, is Tenby. This is the lovely little seaside town in the far southwest and quite a trek to get to. It's 50 miles or so beyond even Swansea, but I think it's worth the adventure. The name, which is much longer in the original Welsh, means small fort of the fish. There's two things in evidence for this. Firstly, it's very much still a fishing village with lots of boats in and around the harbour bringing in fresh seafood every day, most of which are then sold in the pubs, restaurants and takeaways that exist in both the old town and the suburban sprawl. Secondly, the old town itself much of which in high season is closed off to vehicles, allowing pedestrians to stagger out these pubs with no danger, is surrounded by town walls, dating from the late 12th century, when this area was an English enclave surrounded by hostile Welsh homelands. It still is. It was the late Georgian and Victorian eras that saw the modern Tenby emerge, firstly as a spa and then as a recreational town. The colourful houses on the promenades and the popularity of the wide beaches come from this era and make the town what it is today. Pastel houses and sandy toes. What's not to love? Another seaside area with pastel buildings, in this case beach huts, are the myriad of seaside towns on the Norfolk coast, like Cromer, Wells and Sheringham, which I walked through in the first week of my hike across Britain last year. These huts stand almost on the beach itself and are usually used for getting changed into and out of beachwear, storing personal valuables and, let's be honest because this is Britain, staying dry and warm out of the wind and rain. You can rent them or buy them outright, and they're surprisingly expensive for what they are. You often need to spend about ten to £20,000. Think of them as being like a new car. Here, pretty much, it's all about location, location, location. They're usually really brightly coloured, presumably because it just fits in with the general ambience. I think it makes an otherwise dull wooden cabin pretty much appealing. The largest of the towns around here is Hunstanton, which is noted for its unusual rock formations. Indeed, the style is named after these very cliffs. 
My knowledge of geology rivals that of biology, but I can inform you that this is a type section of rock known as the Hunstanton Formation, and it's the primary example of layered limestone rock laying down about 130 million years ago. Late period dinosaurs would have seen this and been as equally bemused as I, because they didn't know anything about geology either. The town itself is mainly known for being a significant resort town though, with beaches, cafes, ice creams, arcades and mini-golf, the usual sort of thing, so it has quite a good tourist base and a vibe. In fact, I've been here several times. I used to be involved in a nationwide social organisation and every year we'd have a meet-up in one of the caravan parks. In November, because it was cheaper. Someone who knows more about this area, being a local, is Lucy from Absolutely Lucy. Growing up in Norfolk, I think that I've been spoilt rotten with cute little seaside towns. Um, I think that it's a massively underrated part of the country and a lot of people seem to forget it even exists, but that's what makes it so special. It's still got that quaint old seaside charm and it's never busy. Even in the busiest part of summer, it never feels like it's busy because there's so much space for everyone to enjoy themselves. Um, I love the fact that we have so many cute little seaside villages and towns. Um, popular ones are usually wells where they do a lot of crabbing along the harbour there. Um, there's loads of really cute ice cream shops and obviously lots of fish and chips. I also really, really love Chroma. It's got the old pier there and it's just so cute. And the um, actual sort of pubs around that area are really nice. There's lovely restaurants. Um, plus lots of entertainment for kids. There's loads of like windsurfing and lots of outdoor sports. Plus all the entertainment, including things like Punch and Judy shows and um, even stuff like pantomimes. There's always lots of entertainment going on around the areas. Um, I think one of my absolute favourites has to be Old Hunstanton. It's actually the closest um, one to where I live and it's just really beautiful and again untouched. Brancaster Beach is also really really lovely um, so yeah I really recommend if you're hoping to get out and about um, in 2021 and explore seaside towns definitely think about visiting Norfolk. At the start of this part you heard from Jackson Adam and they mentioned a few places in Yorkshire including Filey and Scarborough. I've, surprisingly I've never been to either but a third place they mentioned is Whitby. This is a small seaside town on the northeast coast of Yorkshire, on the far side of the North York Moors. Its remote location has meant it's never really grown to anything sizeable. Its current population is about 13,000. Whitby's primary industry was fishing. It was a shipbuilding and whaling port until the development of Middlesbrough a little way up the coast. The whalebone arch on the clifftop is a memorial to this and a symbol of the town itself. It was also in Whitby that famous explorer, navigator, cartographer and failed kidnapper James Cook first took sail, as an apprentice on the coal transporters that plied the coast. Following an eventful career that saw him become the first European to reach Australia's east coast and map much of the western coast of North America, he died while trying to ransom the king of Hawaii in return for repairs. A statue of him also stands on the cliffs. That's a statue of James Cook, not a statue of the king of Hawaii. These days, Whitby is more known as a quaint holiday resort. The typical resort activities like fish and chips, amusement parks and boat trips line the promenade, which leads to an expansive beach. Deeper in the town are narrow brick and cobbled lanes with tourist shops selling souvenirs and the local mineral, Jet. Its biggest claim to fame, though, is its abbey. The ruins date from its disestablishment in around 1540, one of the many victims of Henry VIII's spat with a classic church, but there's been a religious site here since the mid-650s, and apparently it was here that the Kingdom of Northumbria decided to adopt the Roman, rather than the Irish, Iona, calculation of Easter. By modern standards, a minor note, but people had wars over less than this in those days. The Abbey is the last resting place of a few notables from the period, including a couple of kings of the neighbouring kingdoms of Northumbria and Deira, and a couple of knights who served under the later King William the Bastard. In the late Victorian times, the ruins provided an inspiration to the author Bram Stoker, who used the abbey as a background to his novel Dracula. Whitby was where he was said to have landed, and the ruined abbey became his first resting place. This Dracula connection, along with the ruins of the abbey itself and the nearby old church and graveyard, have meant that Whitby have become a pilgrimage site for those in the goth subculture. Every year there is a whole goth weekend festival here. Further up the coast is Saltburn-by-the-Sea, another place with a literary connection. The book in question here, though, is a contemporary female fiction novel called Secrets by Freya North, which I thought was really good, but my tastes aren't the same as the average middle-aged man. 
Although a small village had existed here for some centuries, serving as a fishing village amongst other, shall we say, nefarious amphibious trades, the town that exists today was built largely because one member of the local landowning and industrialist family, Henry Pease, had what he called a prophetic vision of a town on the cliff, with much of the surrounding land turning into garden. He was a Quaker, so the chances of this being a result of illicit substances is quite small. Anyway, the family also owned the local railway company, so they just extended the line to the spot and built the town, fulfilling the vision. Oh, it's good to be rich. And it's quite a pretty place still, unlike most seaside resorts. The only downside being, of course, that for many years, because they were Quakers, there were no pubs in it. Saltburn has the obligatory beach and pier, but as it's built on a cliff top, it also has something fairly unusual as its main attraction. Replacing a vertical lift in 1884 and operated by a water pump is a funicular railway. Known as the Saltburn Cliff Lift, or Saltburn Tramway, it's 63 metres long, 37 metres high, and runs pretty much directly onto the start of the pier. It's an impressive viewpoint from the top. Saltburn Pier, incidentally, according to Wikipedia, is 208 metres long, dates from 1869, and is the last surviving pier in Yorkshire. Even further north, and with a pretty huge beach, although some of it is pebbly, is Whitley Bay. It stretches several kilometres south to Tynemouth, and on a warm sunny day it's a nice walk, either on the sands and pebbles itself, I did it barefoot, don't try this at home, or along the promenade. Of course, don't forget to stop off at a chip shop along the way, colour coats maybe, for a traditional English chippy lunch. But, Whitley Bay is a typical seaside resort, seafront views, amusement arcades, ice cream, blah, but apart from that, it's got a tradition of ice hockey, and I wonder if they were one of the teams I used to watch on TV as a kid, as well as some limited fishing, and the bulk of the northeast's fishing industry is centred a bit further north in sea houses. But it is very much a place to go on a weekend and lazy in the sunshine while children play with a bucket and spade. Off seafront, there are some streets with large Victorian housing, and the old railway station, now part of the Newcastle metro system, is quite an architectural marvel. It is a town very much of its time. Someone who knows Whitley Bay pretty well is Emma Dodd from the blog Barefoot M. No relation. It's an interesting topic for me because I have just bought a flat by the sea, um, which is really, really exciting and is something of a return home for me because I grew up by the sea in a sort of faded grandeur seaside resort in the northeast of England. Um, and it was a wonderful place to grow up and I've got lots of really nice memories of it, even though by the time I left it did feel like it was a little bit bedraggled and in need of a little bit of love. But the seaside resort where I grew up has had that love since I left, which is really, really nice. So the characteristic Spanish city dome, which many of you will know is Whitley Bay, now has had millions of pounds put into it and it really is the focal point of that part of the coast and it looks fabulous it's it's got nice restaurants and and bars in it and shops and it's it's a really lovely place to be which is really really nice so that is really wonderful to go back there and visit and and see that it's had the love that it deserves and i think this year 2020 with lockdown and coronavirus it's been a really interesting one for thinking about the British seaside and how it's been an important part of our holidaying history but everyone's just appreciating what we've got at home these days so much more um, which is why for me returning to live by the sea is so important and obviously as a wild swimmer it's even better and I'm going to be living somewhere so close to the sea that I'll be able to pop in for a dip at lunchtime. So yeah, the sea is a place where I go and I can relax and I can just forget about all of the stresses of everyday life and enjoy just being at one with nature. And even when I swim in the same place, it's different every time. Um, and since I moved to the, back to the coast, I've had a, a, a couple of different swims. And the first one, there was some, some rain out at sea so it was crowned with a rainbow and that made it really special. And, you know, I've, I've swum in the rain, I've swum in sunshine, I've swum when there's been frost on the ground and every one is different. But being by the sea is calming and it's just a wonderful 
experience. So yeah, returning to the sea is a big thing for me and something that, yeah, I'm really glad I've managed to achieve. Emma also talks about moving back to the seaside after some time away and how different this feels. Sarah, the urban wanderer who you heard from earlier, also talks a bit about this. Um, I think I wouldn't want to live in a seaside town for the main reason I think it would lose its magic. You'd get to know it a bit too much, maybe, and you might see those sides of it that aren't quite as, I don't know, interesting because when you're a visitor... You obviously see it from a different perspective and living inland in a city in Manchester, it's totally different to a seaside town. We have the grime, we have the garishness, but you don't have that kind of holiday feeling that you get when you go to Blackpool or Southport or any of the other amazing coastal towns. And when I look back at New Brighton, they've been done up recently and it doesn't really feel the same to me. It might be because I am now a visitor, as I don't live on the Wirral anymore, but it just seems too posh, in a way. It doesn't stop me visiting, though, and I'm always going to be found pounding the proms and walking down the piers, because there's just a sort of fun about it, and I like it that way. Maybe that's the attraction of them, that going there is a special trip. A step away from your normal life and a place where all you need to do is relax, chill and pretend you're a child again. And none of us ever really want to grow old, do we? Well, I hope I've made you think a bit about the seaside and maybe bring back memories or longings for the coast. Next time I'll be possibly still by the seaside, but with a more specific focus. Following on from my pod a few episodes ago about beer, I'll be looking at other types of alcohol around the world, from the best spirits and the finest discoveries to possibly the most unlikely place you might find a tipple. Until then, wash your feet on the way out, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on the Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.